this is great. I, I will just start off by saying I am grateful for this opportunity. Um, it uh, did not happen how I would have planned this to happen if I had if I had been planning this, but that's okay. This is great. I am grateful to be here. It is a pleasure and an honor. Um, I just want to begin this morning by sharing a story with you about a man. Uh, maybe you're familiar with him, maybe not, but that's okay. His name is Eric Little. Uh, and Eric Little was a Scottish athlete. He was a sprinter and a rugby player. And uh, he, in 1924, went with the Great Britain team to compete in the Olympic Games in Paris. And he was like, he was, the, he was their, run, their runner, their, their man for the 100-meter race. Being a sprinter and a rugby player, he was very quick, and they were like, you're going to get us this gold medal. They were set on it. And, uh, and so he was training, getting ready, all this stuff. He was set to run, he was, he was set to run the 100 and the 200-meter race, race. And um, a couple months before the Olympics come, all the athletes had got their schedules as to when their races were going to be for qualifying and for events and all stuff. And he found out that the qualifying race for the 100 meters was on a Sunday. And remember, this is like his race, his race to win, according to everybody. And he makes a crazy decision and says, no, I'm, I'm not going to run the 100-meter race. Everybody's like, what, are you crazy? This is insane. Like, what is going on? Uh, and he said, no, like, I feel convicted by God that Sunday should be my Sabbath. That Sunday should be my day of rest. And so I'm not going to run the, quali- I'm not going to run in the qualifying, and so I'm not going to compete in that race. So he got a lot of backlash for this, naturally. Um, this is, the Olympics don't come around all the time for most people. <laughs> and when you have this opportunity, it's something you don't give up. Uh, and, and so he decided, instead of running the 100-meter race, which he declined, he said, okay, I'm going to run the 400-meter race instead. So if any of you are runners or athletes, you know that there's a big difference if you're a sprinter between 100 meters and 400 meters. Huge difference. Um, so he prepared, and, and everybody is just, everybody's really nervous. They're on the edge of the seat. So the, the, the Olympics come, and he runs a 200-meter race, and, and it was not as good as everybody hoped for. He, he ended up finishing third. He made it to the finals, finished third. Um, and it was a little bit disappointing for him and also for the whole country, for his whole team. Um, but still, he felt convicted, and, and everybody tried to say, okay, maybe you shouldn't run the 400, maybe you should just bow out, like, you're, you're not going to do it, you're not going to win, you're not going to, it's not going to be a good thing. And he says, no, like, I'm sticking with this, so that I'm convicted that this is what God wants me to do. I'm trusting that this is where God, what God's calling me to do. And so he gets, goes, and on the day of the 400-meter final, he makes it to the final, a 400-meter race, okay, which is a miracle in a way of itself. And he shows up, and he runs this race, and he blew, he, he won the race, he blew everybody's mind. He, he, it was crazy because he treated it as a sprint the whole way, which you like never do in these kind of races. And he ended up winning. He ended up setting, at that point, it was the Olympic record and the world record, finishing the 400-meter race in 47.6 seconds, a record that would stand for 12 years until it was beaten, uh, in, until it was beaten 12 years later. Amazing story. An amazing story. And, and, and so I share a story because... This is amazing, this idea of convicting, of trusting, these convictions we get, these trusting, trusting God when he puts something on our heart uh, and when he speaks to us. And we're going to look at that a little bit more this morning. So let's turn, if you have your Bibles, to 2 Kings chapter 18. And, uh, and, and as, we, as you're turning there, what, what I want to look at this morning, the big question I want to explore is, is this, is what do we do... Where do we put our trust when we're in over our heads? 
What do we do and where do we put our trust when we're in over our heads? Uh, and we're going to explore this question because I think this is a really important question. It's really practical. It's, it's really practical for us. Uh, most of you will probably agree with me and realize that most of our life and our experiences happen in kind of two zones, in two main areas. Typically, we have, you have mountains, like highs, and you have lows. Mountains and peaks and valleys. Those are kind of the two main areas we operate, and, and we sort of go back and forth, in and out of those things. And, and so we're going to explore this because sometimes things go really well for us, and it's good, and we're on these, these, these moments where everything is great, and everything is good, and we're good. And then all of a sudden, we, we come down to the valley, and it's in those moments, they're difficult. It's in those moments that it's often a little harder to trust God, and it's in those moments that these are important moments because these are the most shaping and informative moments for us in our life. So by the end of our time together this morning, here's, here's we're going to look at this text in, in 2 Kings 18. And we're going to look at three temptations to avoid in, in what we do when we're over our heads. And hopefully what we'll see is that by the, by the end of this we'll see that when we are in over our heads, that we need to trust Christ over culture. Christ over culture. Uh, so let's, let's pick up the text this morning here, uh, starting in 2 Kings 18, uh, right at the beginning of verse 1. It says this, In the third year of Hoshea, the king of Elah, the king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, the king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old, and when he began to reign, he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, and the daughter of Zechariah, and Hezekiah, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed high, the high places, broke the pillars, cut down the Asherah. He broke into pieces the bronze serpents that Moses had made. He trusted the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. He held fast to the word of the Lord. He did not depart from following him. He kept the commandments that the Lord God had commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him wherever he went. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria. He would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territories from the watchtowers to fortified cities. So immediately we come to this passage, and, and we're, we're kind of up here, right? We're on this mountaintop experience, this, this, this peak. Uh, and this is amazing. And it seems a little bit strange because this, this passage is about breaking things and tearing things down and chopping trees down. So we're like, okay, is this really a good thing? Like, there's a lot of destruction. But it is. Uh, the land had been inhabited by all these, by these other nations and these other gods. And the, if you know anything about the book of Kings beforehand, many of the kings leading up to this point had encouraged that, encouraged the people to walk away from God, to not trust in God, to embrace these idols and all these things. And Hezekiah comes on the scene, and in a moment of, like, revival at its finest, he begins literally chopping down trees and smashing things and breaking temples and all this stuff, and he says, we're going to worship God alone. Truly incredible. Truly amazing. But we find out very quickly, we find out very quickly that we move from this, the, the, the peak, very quickly down to the valley. Let's pick up the text in verse 13. Verse 13. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Now Hezekiah, the king of Judah, sent 
messengers to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, What have I done wrong? Withdraw from me whatever you impose on me, and I will bear. And so the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And on top of that, Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. And Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple and the doorposts of the temple that he had overlaid, and he gave this all to the king of Assyria. So this is where we find our first temptation. Uh, and this is, in this moment in time, Hezekiah faces this moment where all of a sudden he's in over his head. Uh, the, the Assyrians during this time were, they were, they were the big, they were the big dog. They were known for their brutality, their destruction. They, they, they conquered land, they conquered people, and they were, they were absolutely terrible. Um, awful, awful. And Hezekiah, Hezekiah hears about this impending destruction that's coming toward their way, and his first instinct is to send money. He says, okay, I have all this money and gold, and he like, literally takes it off the walls. Like, I don't, know, I don't know how you get gold onto a wall, but taking it off, I'm sure, is that much harder. So he takes gold and silver off the walls and sends it all, all the money he has. He says, here, I'm throwing it out. This is going to fix my problems. And, he, and he, he believes this, this temptation, falls in this temptation that, that when we're in over our heads, that money can fix our problems. He quickly finds out that this didn't solve his problem. The king of Assyria actually just took all of his money and was like, we're still coming for you, so get ready. A little bit of a bummer there. But this is interesting because this idea of, of money and, and, and trusting in money, uh, this is true for us today. There's a, a lie that our culture believes that money is the key to true happiness. And now, money can, you know, money can contribute to happiness on some level, and I think it does. And you know, when we're, when we're looking to provide for our basic needs, and, and you, you, so you have this, if you th- imagine a graph, right? You have the, your money increases, and you're providing for your basic needs, and your happiness also increases. And there's lots of studies, and lots of people have noticed this before, but they show that eventually your graph continues to go up, your money, the money you make goes up, goes up, 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 and your happiness goes up, and then all of a sudden it drops off and it pitfalls. Because on some level, at some point, money can't satisfy us. Money can't fix all our problems. Money can't make us happy. Now, there is a tw- study done in 2020, and this study showed something really interesting, that uh, there was so much stress and anxiety in, in our culture about worrying about money um, that it actually, stress about money actually caused more anxiety for people than their, their worries and stresses about relationships and about work itself, which is kind of interesting, right? Because mo- a lot of people, when you get stressed about money, they take days off work, and so then there's this funny kind of cycle that happens, but... It's kind of ironic, but that money is such a big deal to us, a big stressor often to us. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And then he says this in Matthew 6, 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then he also says in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 12, he says, Don't be anxious about anything. Preaching to a group of people, he says, Don't be anxious about anything. Think of the lilies. Think of the birds. Just take it easy. Don't be anxious. 
This anxiousness that stress and money cause us in our lives, it's very real. Uh, if I were to do a poll now of, of all the couples in this room, uh, I, most of you would probably say, if I did a show of hands, I won't, but that money and finances is one of the leading stresses in most marriages and relationships today. It causes the most, the most frustration and fights and stress. And I know that my wife and I would be one, would be, I, we would agree with that. We would be one to say that as well. This is our first temptation that we face. When we're in over our heads, the temptation to trust, to put our trust in money. To put our trust in money. Let's pick up our passage again here. If, you'd, uh, if we look back at verse 19. Let's pick up Second uh, Kings 18, verse 19. This is what it says. Now the cupbearer came to Hezekiah and said, Thus says the great king of Assyria, On what do you now rest your trust? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In who do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, and that broken reed, a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to all who trust him. So realizing that money can't fix his problems, Hezekiah decides, okay, i got to figure out something else next. And he goes and he says, okay, I'm going to make a political alliance. And he makes a political alliance with the king of Egypt. So the, the, Egypt, the Egyptians this time again were one of those other superpowers, national superpowers. The Assyrians were definitely the largest body and the largest political power, but the, the Egyptians were up there, just, just below them. And so he makes this agreement with them. He says, he goes to them and says, hey, we're going to be attacked. Send me men, send me horses, send me chariots, because like we don't have any. It's like we're not prepared. Our walls only last so long. And, and this is really interesting that he makes this political alliance. Because this is what it says in, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Uh, in, at this moment here you have a little context, so this makes sense. Um, the people of God in Deuteronomy are looking into the promised land and God's saying, this is the land I'm going to give you. And then he gives stipulations to them. And he says, when you place a king over you, because you will, he says this. He says, you may indeed set a king over you when you enter the land to whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. Don't put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And this, he also must not require any horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said this to you. You shall never return that way. He shall not require, acquire many wives for himself, lest he turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. So, again, we're moving back a bit, but this was the warning before the people even inhabited the land that God gave to them, knowing they would set up a king, saying, okay, one, he said, don't, don't, don't make a huge army, but he specifically says, don't trust in the power of Egypt. Don't make alliances with them, because you were already there. And you don't want to go back there. So it's interesting that this is Hezekiah's choice. Now, I, I will say, cause, and I'm not going to stay here very long, but I know politics can be kind of a touchy subject for people. And, uh, and, and for many of us. And my hope here, though, is that, again, I don't want to get too deep with this, but my hope is that we'd see or notice that when it comes to politics and when it comes to our faith, 
they very easily can become intertwined in the church. Oftentimes without us really noticing, and often quicker than we expect it to, but they become intertwined in some level. And I just want us to recognize this, and I think it's important to recognize that. Because when it comes down to it, um, you know, politics are a good thing. I mean, this is the reason that we, that we vote on people to be in places of authority over our country, over our province, over our municipalities. Right? Because we trust in these people, we trust in their promises, we believe that they can help us become a better community, a better country, a better nation. But the more, the more political, politically driven that the church becomes, what happens is that ultimately it causes more divisions. It causes more divisions within the body. And the thing is, is like, we don't have to look very far back in time in our history to see that this is the case, right? Our very recent history shows this to be a reality that we often kind of swing back and forth or struggling with. And like I said, politics is a large part of our culture, and it's important, but here's the thing, and I want you guys to get this, is that we should be, in fact, we need to be, we need to be more attentive to the reality of the kingship of Jesus Christ over and above whatever political party, political leader, or political organization that we find ourselves back in. The kingship of Jesus Christ. So important. This is the second temptation that we find from this passage uh, that when we're in over our heads the temptation to trust in politics okay let's let's look back at our text again we'll pick it up in verse 28 verse 28 then uh, the cupbearer from the king of assyria stood and he called out in a loud voice to in the language of judah and he said hear the word of the great king of assyria Thus says the Lord, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Don't listen to him. This is what the king of Assyria says, make peace with me. Come out and meet me, and each one of you I will give you your own vine, your own fig tree, and each one of you will drink from your own cisterns until I come and take you away to a land very like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. This is our third temptation that we find in this passage this morning. And this is the temptation that we're in over our heads to trust the promises of man. To trust the promises of man. Now, in an attempt here to turn the people of Israel away from their king, it's, it's very much a political act, an act of war. This happens often. Uh, he, he makes all these huge promises. And, uh, and if you know anything, you know, again, if, if you know anything about history, the Assyrians were terrible people, and they would not have followed through on any of these things. Uh, because their plan, for, their plan for taking over was to destroy completely anything that got in their way and anyone that got in their way. Uh, and so I believe he had no intention of holding us, but he makes this promise because he, he wants to take over the city, obviously, and not waste time and waste money and waste the resources of his troops he has. So he makes these promises. He promises them abundance of food, fig trees, their own vine, their own fruit trees to eat from, each person. So if each of you had a fruit tree in this room, that's a lot of fruit trees. 
Now think about like everybody in our country having a fruit tree. That's a lot of fruit trees to promise, okay? Just think about that for a second, okay? This is how big this promise was. Uh, it's an abundance of food. And then he promises them a land, a land that's, that's, that's so abundant and safe, a land that has vineyards, that, that's, that's satisfying to live, that will provide everything they need, a safe place to live. And then ultimately, right, he finishes by saying, I want to give you life. He promises life, abundance and life. And what's interesting about this is that we see this same, this same thing play out in our, in our world today. Every single time we have a Canadian election, you see the parties and their leaders will go and they'll campaign across the country, making stops in different towns, and they'll stand up on platforms and they'll speak to people and they'll make promises because they want to get reelected. They make promises for tax breaks, budget cuts, financial investment into things like healthcare, education, daycare. They promise to deal with past things, past issues past governments have, have caused, reconciling relationships with people. All these promises, big promises. And often, right, many of you probably agree, is that we find ourselves kind of frustrated after a lot of these things, after all these promises, because they end up just being empty words, a lot of them. Many of them do. Now, the Bible also makes promises about, similarly, about a better life and a better future. This is what it says in Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65 says, Behold, I create new heavens and new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice in which I create. For behold, I am creating Jerusalem to be a joy, her people to be a gladness. No more in the city shall be heard sounds of weeping or the cries of distress. No more shall there be infants who live but only a few days or old men who do not fill out his days. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat fruit. From the very beginning, as God was leading his people to the promised land, to the land that he was going to give them to inherit, he made this promise that they would have a land of abundance, flowing with milk and honey. And, and he, he promised them this on the condition that if, that, they, that they, if they followed him, if they listened to his voice, if they trusted his wisdom if they trusted his way, that he would bless them in these ways. And you can find in Deuteronomy chapter 28 a whole list of these blessings that God, would, would, that God promised would come, not just on the people themselves, but on the land and on the animals and on the people that they come in contact with. This is like full-scale blessing from God. Okay. Now, what I hope is that this kind of catches your attention. And if it hasn't, I'll tell you. I'll tell you why it should catch your attention, because it should is that there's a lot of similarities when we look at the promises of God and the promises of man. On a surface level, there's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of similarities. And one of the big ones is that the promises of God and the promises of man ultimately, on a surface, are about abundance and life. Abundance and life. And so this makes this temptation especially tricky for us. I think, amidst the three of them, this is probably the trickiest, because... They're similar, and, it, and it's easy for us to, to get deceived by that. It's easy for us to look and say, well, that sounds good. Like, God wants us to have abundance in life, and God wants to bless us. And, so, and they're saying, this person or this party or this whoever is saying, is making these promises, and that's what they want too. But here's the thing we have to know, is that we have to remember, that we can't forget, is that God is the source of all life. 
God is the source of all life, and so his promises for life and abundance will far exceed anything that any person or anything that our culture will throw our way in terms of promises, guarantees. It'll far succeed them all because he is the source of life itself. The words of Jesus from the Gospel of John, Jesus says, The thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is the third temptation from this passage this morning. That when we're in over our heads, the temptation to trust in the promises of man. So here's the three things, right? These are the three things that we brought them to light. We've looked at these this morning. Um, And these three temptations, they come very clearly in the text, right? Trusting in money, trusting in politics, trusting in the promises of man. And Hezekiah, well, he does two of these things for sure. And he fails. And so it's a good reminder for us because he fails in following through on these temptations, in falling for these. But, and with our time together, I want to just finish off by looking at what Hezekiah does next. Because I think if we stop there, we, we, we miss... We missed something really important. So I want to look at what he does next. We'll turn just one, probably one page over for most of you to chapter 19 of 2 Kings. And, uh, and I want to look at verse 14. This is what it says. 2 Kings 19, verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers from the king of Assyria. And he read it. So this is the letter that outlined everything that was going to happen to them. He read it, and then it says this, he went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. And he went and he prayed. This is a big moment, because Hezekiah literally takes his situation, after trying it his own way, after trying to figure it out on his own, he takes the situation, the letter outlining exactly what's going to happen to them, and he gives it to God and says, God, have this. I don't want it. I can't do this. I can't do it on my own. I've tried and I've failed and this is yours. I'm giving it to you. And then he prays. He prays and he comes to God. Now, what's, this passage this morning, this, there's an element here. There's an element here where there's a reminder for us, kind of a warning for us. And, and it's a warning to kind of be aware of these of these temptations, to steer clear of them, to remind ourselves regularly that we need to trust God, that we need to hold fast to his spirit, that we need to listen to where he is leading and guiding us. And that's very true. But also in this passage, I want to point out that there's an element of hope. There's an element of hope because the reality is is that with these temptations and others as well that we may find ourselves in, we're probably going to fail when it comes to these things. We're probably going to make these same mistakes, and probably more than once, I would imagine. And when we do, when we do fall into temptations like this, and and we make these mistakes, and we fail to put our trust in God, we fail to trust what he has in store for us, and where he's guiding us, you know, we're not, it's not a checkmate. We're not stuck after that. We still have a move. We still have an option. That we can come before God. There's space for us to come back to God. God wants us to come to him, even in these moments, and, and come and say, God, just give everything to him. Say, God, you know my circumstances. You know how this is supposed to play out. You know, God, I can't do this on my own. 
to admit that we've tried, that we've failed, and to admit that we need Him, and we need His love, and we need His Holy Spirit to guide us. We need His strength. And this truly is beautiful, that, we, that God leaves space in our lives for us to come back to Him, even when we've failed, even when we've turned. Now, I, I stand here this morning having, knowing very few of you, if any. I don't think I know anybody here. I'm just going to say that. I probably know, maybe know one or two people, but I don't know any of you. We'll just go with that. And so, I don't know what your lives are like. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know your experiences. I don't know what you've come through. I don't know anything about you. Uh, and so, I don't want to make too many assumptions looking at, you know, looking at as we apply this to our lives. But I do want to end with this. I do want to end with this because I, because this really uh, has been on my heart as I've been preparing for this. And, and my hope is that as we come away from this passage, as we come away from this morning, this time together in worship and around God's word, that as we go into our, into our communities, into the world around you, into your lives, that the cry of your heart, that the cry of your heart will be Christ over culture. That this will be the thing that drives you in everything you do. That is my hope and that is my prayer for myself, for all of you, and for the church at large, Christ over culture. Let's, let's pray, if you bow your heads with me. Father, thank you, for, thank you for this time together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that you've given us. Thank you for these reminders that you've given us in this text. Not to put our trust in the things of this world, in these promises and people and, and institutions that ultimately will fail, but God, to trust wholeheartedly in you. So God, I ask that you would strengthen us to do that. That you would strengthen us to be confident and to be bold in proclaiming the supremacy of the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives, in our world, God. God, would you well, thank you that this morning that you are present, and God, that you are speaking to us, and I just ask that you would, that you would work in our hearts and in our lives, uh, and God, that you would change us, that you would draw us closer to you, and that you would, and that you would, that we would be more satisfied as we do that, God. God, we thank you for, for who you are, and again, we thank you for this time together. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.